0: Heavenly Father, this morning we do rejoice in the deep, deep love of Jesus. Our only hope is in the love of Jesus, not in ourselves. We are sinful people. Heavenly Father, we know our hearts, and yet you love us. We know our hearts, and yet Jesus died for us rose again, conquering death and hell and sin. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning in the love of God that sent the Son and the love of Jesus that came and died for us, as undeserving and sinful as we are. We rejoice and we cling to that cross. It is our only hope. And even now, as we turn our attention to this passage, may we be challenged as we see the love of Jesus, the extreme, amazing love of Jesus, may be a challenge, an example to each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim the the word of God with clarity, with authority this morning your spirit would work through your word for your purpose in each and every one of us. Distractions would fall away. And we focus in on what you have for us this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a video on YouTube of a, a sprinter in Oregon college sprinter who comes up short. He gives up early. He celebrates. It's almost—it's one of those videos where you feel almost embarrassed for the guy as you're watching it. You're embarrassed with him. You feel a little bit bad for him. But at the same time, you feel a little bit good because he kind of deserves it. The sprinter is, it, it, it's a college sprint, obviously, and he's running, and, and he's got a clear lead. He's easily going to win this if he just keeps his pace. But as he gets near the end, probably no farther than I am from the, from the back of this room, he, he starts to slow down, and he pumps his fists, and he waves at the crowd. And right at the last second, as he's about to cross that line, another runner from Washington... Sprints past him. And at the last second, steals first place. It was his. That Oregon sprinter had it if he would just stay focused. But he was distracted. And because of that, he came up short. As we come to our passage this morning, we see... The good news that Jesus did not become distracted. Up until the very end, until the cross itself, Jesus stays focused on the prize before him. This morning in John 13, we see the amazing love of Jesus. Love that does not let up. Love that does not let go. As you've been working your way through John chapter 12, coming now to John 13, I've mentioned every week that this is John 12, is a transition passage. It's a transition between the first half of the book that is focused on Jesus' public ministry to John 13 through the end that is more focused on Jesus' private ministry leading up until his passion. So you have in John 12, you have verses 12 to 19, the triumphal entry as the Jews reject Jesus because he is not exactly what they want, then you have verses 12 to 36 of John 12, when the Gentiles, these Greeks come, and they express interest in Jesus. So you have this kind of under-the-surface thing that is going on where the Jews are rejecting Jesus, and the Greeks, the Gentiles, are coming in and they're starting to be grow interest in Jesus. You have verses 37 to 50, where John discusses the Jewish rejection of Jesus, what we saw last week. That this rejection did not catch God off by, by surprise. God knew this was coming. In fact, it was part of his sovereign plan. God is in complete control, even in the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as you come to the end of John 12, it's the end of Jesus' public ministry. So the rest of John from this point forward is the private instruction of Jesus to his disciples, for the most part, leading up to the events of the Passion. In John chapter... 13 verse 1 is kind of a heading for that section. It tells us, it it kind of backs up and gets a big view of what is going on. Look at the, if you will, at verse 1. And in verses 1 to 3, we see the motivation of Jesus. And and 13.1 kind of sets the stage here. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is the theme of the next several chapters of John, where it's almost as if John is backing up, and he's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to see in the next several chapters. You're going to see that Jesus stays faithful, that Jesus stays focused on the path ahead, that he loves his own even to the end. Notice, if you will, in verse 1. When we are before the feast of the Passover. But notice also that Jesus knew. In fact, you'll notice throughout this passage, Jesus knew several things. All throughout, three or four times, you'll see the word Jesus knew this, or knowing that. And the first time we see this is here in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come. We saw that uh, a few weeks ago in John 12, 23. As I mentioned earlier, as the Greeks come to Jesus, and these Greeks show interest in Jesus, even at the same time as the Jews are rejecting Jesus. It's at that moment that these Greeks show interest in Jesus that the time shifts from being in the future to at hand. Jesus knew that his hour had come And as we come here to John 13, Jesus' time is not just down to weeks. It's not even down to multiple days. It is down to hours. He knows that it is here. But what is this hour that he's talking about? Well, it goes on to tell us, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Which hour? The hour that he should depart from this world to the Father. He knows this time is here. The cross looms large in the mind of Christ and is right before him, hours away, and he sees the end at hand. The time is here for me to depart from this world to the Father. I will die, but I will rise. I will ascend. I will sit at the right hand of the Father. I will rule with him. how Jesus must have longed for that and this hour as Jesus knows that his hour has come how he must have looked forward and longed to be reunited with the father to be sitting at his right hand in glory I don't think that we can even to begin to understand how Jesus must have longed for that it is what is rightfully his it is who he is he finds himself clothed in flesh, facing death, sitting with a group of 12 men who, who, even as we'll see in these chapters, one of whom will betray him, several of whom will abandon him in his hour of need. But seeing the end at hand, Jesus stays faithful in the present seeing the end at hand, that it is time for him to depart this world, to go back to the Father, he didn't take his foot off the gas. He didn't pump his fist. He didn't take a victory lap. He stays faithful in the present. In fact, verse 1 goes on to say, having loved his own The focus here is shifting more to this intimate group that the 12 uh, apostles, the disciples are with him having loved his own. He loved them, his whole ministry since he called them, he loved them, he served them. And so having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. He didn't back up a little bit. He didn't slow down. He loved them, and he loved them to the end. His obedience to the Father does not falter, and his love for his own does not falter, even in the midst of their faltering faith here at the end, as we will see. that word, that idea, he loved them to the end, it's not just how long he loved them to his death, to the end of his life, it's how well he loved them to his full ability. He loved them as long as he could. He loved them as best as he could. MacArthur uses the word perfectly. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. As I mentioned, verse 1 kind of backs up here. It's giving us a big view. and these next several chapters, this is what we're going to see we are going to see Jesus approaching the end and faithfully loving his own to the end. But then it says "If verse 2 kind of zooms back in to this specific instance where we find ourselves. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So as we zoom in here, We're zooming into the time of day. Supper has ended. But notice something else that has happened. The devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot. This is not a physical possession, but it's clear influence. The devil has influence over Judas at this point. He's already put it into his heart to betray him. John doesn't put this here as an excuse for Judas. Judas. There is no excuse. He puts it here for us. It's a peek behind the curtain. MacArthur, again, notes that Judas's wicked heart desires exactly what the devil desired. The devil is not here forcing Judas to do something he does not want to do. Judas betrays Jesus because Judas wants to betray Jesus. It just so happens that his desire lines up with the devil's desire. The devil is working with Judas, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Perhaps that is what is most striking about this passage. It's what stood out to me all week long as I studied this passage. The fact that Jesus Jesus knows what Judas will do. We're getting a peek behind the curtain. As John mentions, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas, Jesus knew all along what is going on in Judas's heart. Jesus knows that Judas will betray him. In fact, you'll see that when we get to verse 18, where he says, I do not speak concerning all of you because I know whom I am chosen. I know. I know your heart, Judas. Jesus knows. And yet, Jesus loves him to the end. Think about that. Wrap your mind around that. Jesus loves Judas to the end. Even though Judas will betray him. Jesus loves Peter to the end, even though Peter will deny him three times. Jesus loves his disciples to the end, even though all of them but John will flee and will not be at the cross. He loves them to the end. In fact, not only does he love them to the end, he shows that love, as we'll see in verse 4 going forward. So the devil has been working on Judas. Judas. Verse 3, Jesus knowing. Here again is another knowing. Jesus knows. He knew that his hour had come. Verse 1, here verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. That is an interesting phrase if you think about the context in which that is put. What is it that is in Jesus' immediate future at this point, it is the cross. It is His death. And yet what he knows is that the Father has given all things into his hands. You see, Jesus does not view the, does not go to the cross reluctantly. He goes to the cross victoriously. He goes to the cross knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew who he was. He knew that he had come from God. He knew where he was going. He knew he was going to God. I think that's important for us to see. Don't miss verse 3. Jesus goes to the cross knowing this. Not reluctantly, victoriously. He loves his disciples radically to the end because he trusts God radically to the end. He knows this. He knows that God has given all things into his hands. That is why he goes to the cross. He knows that God has given all things into his hands. He knows that he has come from God. He knows that he is going to God. And that is why he is able to love his disciples to the end faithfully. In fact, it is this knowledge that leads to verse 4. His actions. So don't miss, in the first three verses, we have Jesus' motivation. He loves them to the end. He knows who He is. He knows where He is going. He knows that God has given all things into His hands. And knowing this, what does He do? Verse 4, He rose from supper, laid aside His garments, took a towel and girded Himself. The Lord who humbled himself to save now humbles himself to serve. He laid aside his glory. Now he lays aside his garments. He takes up a towel. He girds himself. He pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Think about that. What have we just seen? Jesus knows that God has given all things into his hands. He knows he is going back to the Father. He knows he will be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and power. And what does he do knowing that? He gets down and he serves. He washes his disciples' feet. This is not just service, it is the lowest form of service. It is almost a shameful duty. It was a duty that would be given to to, to children who couldn't do anything else. And yet Jesus, the Lord of glory, He doesn't just serve His disciples. He serves them in the lowest possible way. Verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter. This must have been a scene to behold, as apparently they watch in silence and wonder as Jesus goes around, disciple to disciple as he wets their feet, as he washes their feet, as he picks up his basin of water, as he picks up his garments, and he goes to the next disciple, and he gets back on his knees, and he dips it again in the water, and he washes again. And then he gets back up off his knees, and he gets his basin of water, and he gets his cloths, and he walks to the next disciple, and he gets down on his knees again, and he repeats it over and over and over. And they watch in silence They watch in wonder as the Lord of glory bows before them on his hands and his knees, and he washes their feet. And he comes to Peter. And Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? The emphasis there is on the you and the my. Peter's amazement is not at what is happening, washing of his feet. Yes, it is a low service, but it is something that was well known in the time. His amazement is that the who is washing his feet. You, Lord. He uses that phrase, Lord. His messianic undertones. You who are the son of God, you who are the Messiah, are you washing my feet He's struck with this. He cannot wrap his mind around this. You are washing my feet. Jesus answers and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand. But you will know after this. We see this several times in the book of John, actually, where the disciples look back later on what Jesus has done. And and they look back with new vision. They look back with new eyes. And they they understand. They're able to grasp it. We see it first in John 2. As Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. And, And we're told the disciples later looked back and understood what Jesus was saying. He was talking about his body. We see that here too. Jesus says, I'm washing your feet. You don't necessarily understand now what I'm doing, but you will after this. You don't understand, but trust me, Peter. I know what I'm doing. Simply trust me. Let me do this. You will understand. Trust me. But we know Peter, don't we? Peter, being Peter, can't just be quiet. So Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. This is so like Peter. He is bold, and yet oh so foolish. You have an odd juxtaposition of humility and pride here. In humility, he knows that he is not worthy. He knows Jesus is Lord. I I don't deserve to have this. And yet, at the same time, in pride, he tells Jesus what to do. I don't deserve this, so you're not going to do this. Stop. You will never wash my feet. I think it's interesting to note that Peter has the right motives. He's motivated to do this, not because he thinks that he's too good for it, but because he thinks that Jesus is too good for it. He knows that he is not worthy. It's love that motivates him to say this. But right motives do not always guarantee right actions. Mm -hmm. Peter might have been right in his thinking, I don't deserve this. But he's wrong to dictate to Jesus what he can and cannot do. In fact, that's where wisdom comes in, is it not? Wisdom is knowing when to act and when to sit and listen and learn. So Peter lacks in this moment, he lacks wisdom. He has zeal, but he lacks wisdom. You will never wash my feet, Lord. Jesus answers him. And this is where we begin to see that there's something greater that is going on. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is making here a larger point than simply their need to keep their feet clean. In fact, what we see going on here is that the washing of dirt pictures the washing of sin. Peter is right. He does not deserve Jesus to wash his feet. He's not wrong in that. And yet Jesus washes his feet still. In fact, Peter does not deserve Jesus to die for him, and yet Jesus dies for him still. What Jesus is saying here to Peter is that you must submit to me. You must trust me. Peter, you cannot clean yourself. You must be washed by me. Mm -hmm. MacArthur notes that Jesus' response Jesus' response made the real point of his actions clear. Unless the Lamb of God cleanses a person's sin, one can have no part with him. If I don't wash you, you have no part from me. You must trust me. You must be washed by me. You cannot clean yourself, Peter. You cannot do this yourself. We have Peter's response in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Once again, in his passionate exuberance, Peter finds himself dictating to Jesus what he can and cannot do rather than simply, at this point, submitting and listening and learning. Peter's exuberance is almost here humorous. You must not wash me. I must. Then you must wash all of me. I think, in a sense, we appreciate Peter's enthusiasm, do we not? But his unfiltered mouth displays his proud heart. (laughs) He finds himself here overcompensating, and now he's once again dictating to Jesus again You must not wash me. Okay, well, then this is what you must wash on me, all of me. We've all been in class with students like Peter, have we not? In fact, I can picture the rest of the disciples sitting there saying, Peter, shut up, let Jesus finish speaking, just be quiet. You're just messing this up. Just be quiet. Jesus again says to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. The picture here is of a man who, in the beginning of a day, he bathes. He is clean. And he goes out to run errands. And as he runs errands, he, he goes to all these different stores, all these different places, all these different people's houses. And as he gets there, he does not need to rebay at each and every house or establishment that he goes to, does he? He simply needs to wash off the dirt that he's picked up along the way. He simply needs to wash his feet, and then he can go around his day. He's already clean. One commentator noted this, that the bath represents the complete, unrepeatable cleansing of new birth. The original cleansing, I have cleaned you. But then the washing of the feet pictures the repeated cleansing needed for intimacy with Christ after salvation. Peter, I don't need to clean all of you again. I've already cleansed you. But we are so like Peter, are we not? We want to dictate terms to Jesus. We're willing to to trust Him to cleanse us of our sins and salvation. But we don't like coming back to Him. We don't like coming back and confessing our sins. We don't like coming back and being cleaned up. Lord, I've messed up again. Well, I, that's just a little thing. I can take care of that myself. No, you can't. Jesus says here to Peter, you trust me to wash you, not trust me to clean you up. What we see here is the difference between justification, one time I am saved by faith, and sanctification, ongoing, constant growth. It becomes clear that that is what Jesus has in mind because he says in the end of verse 10 to 11, you are clean but not all of you. You've all been cleansed. You've all been justified but there is one who is not. Well, who is this one? Verse 11 tells us, for he knew, again, Jesus knows, he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. You've all believed, you've all been cleansed, you've all been justified, but not all of you, there's one who hasn't been cleaned. And that is the one who'll betray Jesus. So we saw his motivation, he loves and he knows. We saw the action that he took because of that motivation, because Jesus loves, because Jesus knows, He took action. He served. He washed their feet. In verse 12 to 17, we see then the lesson. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? He's explained in the midst of washing their feet. He explained why he must wash them. But what is it that he's trying to teach them now? If Peter would just shut up, what is it that he's trying to get across? Do you know what I've done to you? Verse 13, this is it. You call me teacher, rabbi. It's a respected name. It's not necessarily unique. There are lots of rabbis. You call me teacher and Lord. That is unique. That has messianic undertones. You recognize who I am. I am your teacher deserving of respect. In fact, I am more than your teacher. I am Lord, deserving of all glory. And you say, well, you're right, for so I am. So if I then, your Lord and your teacher, who is worthy of respect, who is worthy of glory, who is worthy of worship, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I, who am, who, if I, being who I am, have done this for you, what ought you to do? I deserve honor. I deserve glory. I deserve worship, and I have stooped so low to wash your feet. So also you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. That is what it is that I have done for you. In verse 12, he asks, what do you know? Well, what I've done for you is I've given you an example. The example is this, that you should do as I have done to you. Foot washing here is not set forward as an ordinance, but as an example. Love one another to the extreme measures as I love you. Serve one another to the extreme levels that I have served you. Jesus, the Lord, set aside His glory to die and He set aside His cloak to wash. There was no limit to Jesus' love or Jesus' service for His own. And there must be no limit to our love and our service for one another. If our Lord does this, how much more must we do? In fact, that's what he goes on to say, most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. You said that I am your teacher. You said that I am your Lord. You said that you are my servants. Right? So a servant is not greater than his master. If the master is doing something, the servant can at least do that. Nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. So if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Hear me. Understand this. See this. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed, but joyful are you. It's a promise. There was joy in serving. What we see here in verse 17 is that knowledge, blessed are you, if you know these, knowledge leads to action. Action leads to joy. Knowledge leads to action. It should, at least, if you know these things, do them. And if you do them, you will be blessed. Knowledge leads to action. Action leads to joy. In fact, Is this novel we just talked about last Sunday night in Romans 12, verses 3 to 8? Humility, a right view of oneself. I am a servant. Plus, knowledge, my master loved extravagantly equals service, I must love extravagantly. Be humble so that you can serve. It's the exact same thing that we see here in this passage this morning. And then you come... Verse 18 to 20, encouragement. Encouragement. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know, again, Jesus knows, I know whom I have chosen, but that scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Once more, Jesus separates. There's one among you who is different from the rest. One among you who has not been cleansed. One among you who has not believed. And so I do not speak this concerning all of you, because I know whom I have chosen. I know. I know Judas. I know that he's among us. Put yourself in Judas's shoes. How, how, how uncomfortable this conversation must have been for Judas as he is sitting there, and it it is clear that Jesus knows. Who else knows? How that must have tormented his soul as he is sitting there. Not only as he's sitting there and Jesus is talking, how it must have stung as Jesus bowed and washed his feet. He knows, and he is washing my feet. I know whom I've chosen but that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here again, we have that same idea that we saw last week as the Jewish rejection of Jesus was not a surprise to God, but it was in the sovereign plan of God. So Judas's betrayal of Jesus is not a surprise to Jesus. It is in the sovereign plan of God. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. In fact, he points to Psalm 41.9, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41.9 is in the context where David has been betrayed by his closest friend, his ally, Ahithophel. He ate bread with me. He lifted up his heel against me. He ate bread with me, and yet he lifted up his heel against me. He betrayed me. It's interesting Psalm 41.9, you have the lesser David betrayed, you have the greater David betrayed by those they trusted, by those they loved. And don't get the idea that just because Jesus knew this was going to happen, it was easy for him. He loved Judas. How this must have wrecked his heart to see this one that he loves so much, betray him, to see this path that he is going on even now. And yet he still loved him. Verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes, I tell you of Judas' betrayal that is coming, I'm letting you know now. So that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. See, to be caught by surprise by Judas' betrayal may have devastated the faith of these disciples. If Judas can betray him, what is going on? But Jesus tells them this is coming. One of you will betray me. And by letting them know ahead of time, he turned something that could devastate their faith into something that will cause their faith to increase. Now they won't see. say, why didn't Jesus see this coming? They will marvel that Jesus saw it coming and loved him anyways. This I tell you that when it does come to pass, when it does happen, because it will, you will believe that I am he you will see what is going on, that I knew. And then verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Here Jesus encourages them regarding Judas's coming betrayal, and he's hinting at their coming commission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. There's so much more going on here than you all know. But know this, I will be betrayed and I will send you out. What is coming will be difficult, but trust me and you will grow through it. And then you will go in my authority to the world. He who receives whomever I send, receives me. There's a hint there of something that is coming. I will send you with authority. Judas' betrayal will not be the end. So as we come to the end of this passage, we've seen that all throughout this, Jesus knows. He knew that his hour was at hand, and so what did he do? He loved until the end. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew that he was come from the Father, and that he was going to the Father. So what did he do? He got down on his hands and knees, and he served them. Jesus knew who would betray him. He knew what was going on behind the scenes this entire time. So what did he do? He loved and he taught. He loved them to the end. Our way of application for us this morning. First, know. Be informed. Stand in awe of the great love with which God loves you. See that love as on display in this passage. Passage. The Lord of glory would stoop so low to serve. Know that God loves you. Know what that looks like. Know to what level He loves. Be informed. Know the truth. But then secondly, don't stop with knowing, but you who know this, Be blessed as you do. Be challenged. Know how much God loves you. Know what God has done for you. And then love and serve one another. Let the love of God challenge you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. To love the world around you so much that you give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowledge must lead to action. And finally, go. Go and be encouraged. Go boldly, knowing that Jesus knows, that Jesus is at work, that He has commissioned and sent you with authority. Know the truth, be challenged to take action. And go in boldness and be encouraged. Let the extreme love of Christ call you to extreme love for one another. If Jesus can wash the dirty feet of His disciples, what is there that you cannot do for one another? What is there that I cannot do for you? Serve and love one another. couple other points. First, if you're here this morning and you do not know the love of God, if you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, I would call you this morning to submit and to believe. Yes, you are a sinner. And yes, you are unworthy, as all of us are. And yet, God loves you. And He sent His Son to die for you. To bear your burden, to pay your penalty, won't you believe and be saved even this morning? Second, Christian, those of us who are in Christ, see the need to confess your sins. See the need to be cleansed by Christ, not just in justification, but daily in sanctification as you're growing in Christ. Take your sins to Him. Be washed clean. Don't try to hold it in. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to fight it in your own strength. Turn to Christ. Confess your sins. Be made clean. And finally, commit to love and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just make a mental note. Okay, yes, I need to serve. I would challenge you this morning to take a step. Do something. Maybe in the margin of your Bible, make a note. I'm going to serve. This is what I'm going to do. Maybe there's someone this morning here who you know has a need. Go to them directly after the service and say, I want to serve you. I want to meet this need. I want to love you. I care about you. When you get home, write down an action plan. What is it that I am going to do? How? Not just a mental note. Yes, I need to serve. How am I going to serve? What specifically will I do to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? If Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, I can do this. I must do this. Do something more than mere mental consent this morning. Recognize your need. Either of a Savior... Turning to him in faith, to confess your sins, or to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do something.